with no further ado, I'm happy to introduce you to some of my fellow partners, all experts in restructuring and special situation. With uh, starting in the UK, Kirsten Gert. Hi, Kirsten. You will see as well Andrea Brennan from uh, our Dublin office in Ireland. Santiago Hurtado in Spain, Madrid and our German partner, Christopher Kranz. Well, this session is uh, dedicated to increased liabilities risk uh, in connection with uh, distressed companies. So I would start asking um, maybe uh, Christopher in Germany, what are the main insolvency risks that you see for directors in Germany typically? Thanks, uh, Sandra. I think we have altogether three um, risks in Germany, which we have to focus on if we're advising um, directors in a distress scenario. The first one is really derives from a monitoring duty the directors have. They have to monitor the solvency of the company on a continuous basis, in particular if there is a sign of, of distress. And usually you would you would say that they have to set up a liquidity or cash flow forecast for 24 months in order to detect if there is a situation which we would call an impending illiquidity where um, you can already see in the cash flow forecast that at some point in the future there will be a significant liquidity shortfall and once that happens and it's visible for the directors they do have to get in touch with their supervisory boards and with their uh, shareholders uh, assemblies and they have to take the necessary actions in order to prevent that liquidity gap from becoming an insolvency situation in the future. If they don't do it, um, there's a risk um, of liability towards the company. So that's the first one. The second one is the probably the most important uh, liability risk, and that really derives from the filing duties we have in Germany. These are very strict. So we do have a filing duty for illiquidity and one for over-indebtedness. Illiquidity, you have three weeks. Um, once you've detected this as a director, then you have to file for insolvency. With over-indebtedness, you have six weeks. Um, and if you don't do that um, properly, you're delaying an insolvency and that's a criminal offense in Germany even. So you're probably liable towards creditors and the company and maybe even criminally liable. And the third one, um, which is very, very important in the practice is um, liability for payments which a director makes after insolvency has occurred. So after insolvency has occurred, a director should not make any payments anymore. Otherwise, you can become liable towards the insolvency um, administrator. The problem with that is um, not all DNO insurance um, insurances cover that um, that claim from the insolvency administrator. You really have to make sure, as a director, that your insurance policy is clear enough on that point um, that this type of claim is also covered. And um, the problem with this claim really is it's claimed by the insolvency administrator. He will simply add up all payments made after insolvency. He will say to the court, insolvency happened on day one, and everything you paid afterwards will be will be added up. And then it's for the director, the onus of proof, to show that the actual liability is, is lower. And therefore, the market approach is, once you've detected an insolvent situation, don't make any payments anymore, switch into emergency management mode, and have a, um, a neutral person really analyze whether or not you can make that payment. And if it's in doubt, don't make it. You're on mute, Sandra. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. Santiago, what about Spain? <clears throat> 
Hi, Sandra. Oh, thank you. Um, this is quite similar in Spain. Um, the only thing we have out uh, the duty we have you know, in spending of the transposition of the directive is the monitoring of solvency. That is not a real duty uh, 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 so far in Spain, but we are trying to introduce in our regime with the transposition of the uh, directive. But basically, in Spain, a director of a limited company would be liable for two kinds of situations, uh, facing to the liquidation and facing to insolvency. In the case of the liquidation, uh, it could be liable failing to comply with the obligation of calling the general shareholder meeting in order to approve liquidation resolution or uh, eliminate the cause of liquidation. Uh, even when once the shareholder meeting uh, has been convened for any of the those purposes, liquidation or trying to avoid liquidation, filing to hold it is the second one. And once the liquidation uh, has been approved by the shareholder meeting, filing to comply with the obligation of requesting the judicial liquidation. So it's the different points and different times in regarding to the liquidation. But as a separate issue is uh, with um, um, the insolvency situation, uh, could be liable failing to comply with the obligation of applying the voluntary insolvency proceeding. This is maybe the, the, the key, it's a key point in our regime, saying that uh, when there, there are enough evidence of insolvency, and in our legislation, uh, for instance, is a general default in the current payment obligation of the debtors, the directors absolutely it's mandatory to go and file the insolvency proceeding within two months. Um, um, if our the company is dealing with a sort of restructuring within the three months of the communication to the court that there are uh, the opening the negotiation with the creditors without uh, in, in, in trying to reach an agreement. If the agreement they don't reach an, a refinancing agreement on an out of court settlement, uh, they 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 can be liable if they don't convene or they, they won't convene a new general uh, general meeting or file an uh, insolvency proceeding. So, thank, thank you, Santiago. So there are strong similarities with France as well because directors need to monitor closely the financial situation when they see that the companies falls into distress. In France too, like uh, Germany and Spain, there are strong filing duties and following 45 days of a state of insolvency, if they don't file for insolvency proceeding, they are liable and liable to creditors and it depends how egregious the situation may be, but they may be also be criminally liable. Well, switching into uh, the UK, Kirsten, uh, could you let us know in a distress scenario, when do duties start to be owed to creditors? When do they become the paramount concern of the directors? Sure. Um, thanks, Sandra, and good to be speaking to everyone on the call today. Um, I think it's really important from an English law perspective to emphasize that the directors always owe their duties to the company. So the, the real question is, when they're carrying out their functions to the company, whose interests do they have in mind? And when does that switch from being the shareholders to the creditors in a distressed scenario? And the answer under English law is it's a bit of a moving question at the moment. Um, 
And that's because we had a, a case go before the Court of Appeal in England in 2019. And it's quite rare that these sorts of cases get this this high up. It was a case about um, unlawful dividends and transactions at an undervalue, but it also considered creditors' interests. And in that case, they said that the, the interests shift um, when the directors know or, or ought to know um, uh, that the company is likely to become insolvent. So what we have is a sort of sliding scale scenario, much less precise than I think my European counterparts. Um, what was clear on that sliding scale is it's it's now more than it used to be, which was a kind of zone of insolvency test. But the way that they crafted this test made it look a little bit like the wrongful trading test, which is actually slightly different again, which is that directors can't continue to trade uh, if they've concluded or ought to have concluded there's no prospect of avoiding insolvency. So you've got sort of wrongful trading as the highest threshold duties, um, interest shifting to creditors in the middle and then zones of insolvency in the less. So we've got a bit of a patchwork. But the reason it's a moving question is because that case went to the Supreme Court in May this year and judgments expected, I think, probably before the end of the year. And I think what's interesting about that is, of course, the Court of Appeal in 2019 were hearing this question without a COVID backdrop. But the Supreme Court will, I think, have had one eye on the, the COVID situation, the types of measures that have been put in place, and quite frankly, how difficult it's been for directors over the course of the last year in dealing with this kind of patchwork. So mm. I'm hoping that we see towards the end of this year, a streamlining uh, of the test and perhaps something that avoids directors triggering insolvency proceedings earlier than they need to. And I'm sure you will keep us posted on that. We can, I certainly we will. Can't wait. <laughs> Uh, thanks for that, Kirsten. Uh, so thinking about the creditors on this call, uh, what does it actually mean for them when interests shift and the director has to regard their interests as paramount? And what can a creditor do about it if the director is not acting properly? Yeah, well, obviously, that's the most important uh, question for people on this call, because we can talk about these sorts of tests in a, in a bit of a vacuum. But I think I'm often asked by financial institutions and creditor entities, you know, what does this actually mean for me if, if the duties have shifted to, to creditors? What are my rights? What are my ways through if I, if I want to bring claims? I think there's been wrongdoing. And I think the answer remains, at least in England, that actually it's quite limited what a creditor can do directly. I think in a distress scenario, the, the shift to creditors' interest probably means they've got more standing to ask for information. They've got more of a seat at the table to be able to better understand the true prospects of the companies. And of course, they always have their contractual rights. But I think when once, once an insolvency process hits or an administration hits, in terms of claims that can be brought in England, it's always the office holder that's in control of, of any litigation that's brought, whether it be against auditors or the directors or other counterparties. There are some limited sort of ways through in that they can, um, uh, creditors could bring a misfeasance claim, but it needs to be remembered that that's just a process. There needs to be an underlying cause of action, whether that's breach of duty or a a preference or a transaction at an undervalue. And so if a creditor brings that kind of a, a claim, they will still be litigating in the interests of the company and the creditor group as a whole, not just in their own interests. So whether or not you want to do that will depend on, on where you rank and the size of your claim. You might be able to bring, um, for example, um, a, a claim about transactions defrauding creditors, but you need leave of the court to do that. 
again, because it's primarily for the office holder to do. So it's quite a high bar because the court's going to be wondering, why didn't the office holder want to bring this themselves? What does that mean about the prospects of success? And I think lastly, just on this topic, I'd say, I think one of the best routes through now, if you think you've got a disinterested office holder and you really think there's been some wrongdoing as a creditor, is to try and get an assignment of claims from the office holder. And actually, that's only been something that we've been able to do in the UK in the last few years, that office holders can now assign claims about preferences and undervalues and things. And actually, it was only confirmed last year, at the end of last year in a case, that um, if you do take an assignment as a creditor, you get the benefit of the action. So you're not litigating for the benefit of the company and the credit as a whole, you're litigating for yourself. And that makes perfect sense. And it's been good to have that confirmed. So this is something, this kind of structure is something we're seeing more and more, and I think is a really helpful development in in getting claims off the ground by parties who have the interest and, and most importantly, the funds to do so. I'm sure it will be uh, helpful to our clients, creditors and funds. And I'm sorry, we have an additional guest today who's also yeah. very interested <laughs> by the topic. <laughs> so, Andrea, queuing to you. Um, moving on from risks facing lenders uh, to action a lender can take in Ireland, can a lender look to take proceedings against directors for, say, fraudulent, uh, reckless trading, rather than waiting for the office holder to do so? Uh, thanks, Sandra. So yes, in Ireland, in most instances, a creditor does have locus standi to issue proceedings against directors for fraudulent trading or looking to challenge, you know, a transaction where assets have been improperly transferred, etc. However, in practice, this rarely occurs for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that if such an action is successful, any monies or assets recovered are paid into the liquidation pot and are distributed by the liquidator in accordance with the rule of priority. So the creditor in taking this action does not secure any preference or priority to, to those monies ahead of um, he, he, any other creditors. So accordingly, unless the monies or the assets recovers, recovered are likely to fall within that creditor's security or where that creditor is, for example, by far the largest unsecured creditor and there is anticipated to be a dividend, there's often little benefit to be gained by taking such actions. Um, another reason that lenders or, or creditors don't tend to take these um, cases is that the lender usually has insufficient information or documentation to support the allegations and would often be reliant on the liquidator sharing information with them. The liquidator is usually better placed to take the proceedings, so the lender will often ask the liquidator to take the proceedings and rather than the lender bringing it itself but then it would often um, offer to cover the cost of the proceedings where there is an insufficiency of assets available for it. So, I mean, at the same time, the option is there, rarely used, but in the right set of circumstances, it may make sense for a creditor to take such proceedings. And it's good to know that it is there and it is available from an Irish law perspective. Very interesting. What about you, Christopher? In uh, Germany, do you know this concept of shift of director's duties, which we don't know in France? Actually, this this is not a, a common a common uh, topic in Germany since since a couple of years it's become more more important actually. But I think the conservative answer still is that outside of an insolvency proceeding or let's say a, a pre-insolvency proceeding like the the, the German Starrock, um, there is 
no shift of duties towards the, the general body of creditors. So like in the UK, the, the duties are owed to the company um, and not to the creditors directly. Um, but in, interestingly, there are now a few views in the, in the German literature which are very, very much inspired by, our, uh, by the situation in, in the UK. Basically, that uh, that say that there should be a, a shift of duties once the company has become impending illiquid. So once on the 24 months cash flow forecast prognosis, there's an illiquidity situation which would arise with a 50% plus X likelihood, basically as a as an as a as a illiquidity in the future. And for me, that's not convincing to be honest. It's also not court tested. So that's just a view in the literature, and it's not convincing because that would be way way too early to shift the duties. That was really interesting what Kirsten uh, uh, said earlier that it's a sliding scale in the UK, and the UK courts would you know really look like the the spot before the insolvency directly or the phase before the insolvency directly, and not not 23 or 24 months before. Uh, an insolvency event would actually happen. So for me, not convincing to have it outside an insolvency proceeding. The whole thing is different if you're inside an insolvency proceeding um, or inside a pre-insolvency proceeding like the Starok. And in a Starok, for example, the directors still drive the process. They are still in the driver's seat. Therefore, they can make mistakes. And therefore, the legislator has made it clear that in the Starok, um, the, the duties are owed to the general body of creditors. So first rank of duties towards the creditors and then from other duties. Um, with, within an insolvency process or proceeding, you would normally um, have the directors displaced by an office holder and the insolvency administrator, but not always. Um, there's a chance that you have a self-administration proceeding or a protective shield proceeding. Then the directors remain in place, still drive the process, and then it's clear that they have the same responsibilities as an insolvency administrator has. So they owe a very strict duty towards all creditors, and they can't rely on a safe haven like a business judgment rule or something like that. This is out of the question in an, um, in an insolvency situation. So therefore, um, we have to make that differentiation between outside and inside insolvency. That's quite interesting. We don't have the shift of duty in France, but there has been some uh, uh, inspiration to enlarge the scope of what companies' duties has been. And we had a law called the Pact Law, uh, where it included for the first time a concept of uh, addressing stakeholders and being careful, not hindering stakeholders. And among the stakeholders, you have creditors, but you have employees as well. So it's the beginning of an attempt to uh, take into consideration the other stakeholders, but not going through the route of the shift of duty. Well. Um, Going back to you, Andrea, I was wondering if there's any other risks that lenders need to be aware uh, of from an Irish law perspective. Yeah, well, Sandra, there are a number of risks that lenders need to be aware of from an Irish law perspective. So, firstly, you know, there is the fact that floating charge security is liable to be set aside if created within 12 months prior to the commencement of a liquidation unless a lender can prove that the company was solvent immediately after the giving of that floating charge security. And as you can appreciate, that is something a lender is going to struggle to prove and therefore leads, leaves lenders quite vulnerable in having their floating charge security set aside. Um, another risk um, to bear in mind is that security may be set aside on the basis of it being an unfair preference. 
So an unfair preference extends to include a mortgage provided within six months prior to the commencement of a liquidation and such security is given with a view to giving that creditor preference over other creditors of the company. And that look back period is in fact increased to two years where the lender is a connected party. If no new monies are being advanced at the time that the security is taken, that would leave that security that more vulnerable for to a challenge unless the lender can show some other benefit that accrued to the company in exchange for the granting of that security. Um, in addition to unfair preference, there's, there's a risk that security may be set aside on the basis that the effect of the mortgage was to perpetrate a fraud on the creditors or, or on the company. There's no spe- specified look-back period for that, um, for those particular transactions, and the test is an objective one. So the court will look at the effect of the transaction and not the party's intent. Um, so the court will consider whether the giving of security resulted in any benefit to the company or did it simply transfer an asset which is placed beyond the reach of creditors with no real discernible benefit accruing to the company. Again, if no new monies are being advanced at the time additional security is obtained, that leaves it more susceptible to challenge and a lender in trying to defend such a challenge would hopefully be able to point to some benefit, whether that's agreeing not to take enforcement action after a default has occurred in exchange for this security, or there's other benefits such as rate cuts, uh, payment holidays, term extensions that they may be able to point to. But again, the benefit needs to be looked at and see is it proportionate to the value of security that has been um, provided. For example, if the security is over an asset worth a million and the other, be- other benefit can be you know, valued in the region of 100,000, that may not stand up to the close scrutiny um, if challenged by a liquidator or a creditor. But each, each situation would have to be assessed on its own facts and to look at and weigh up the risk involved in the taking of security in that situation. Thank you. Christopher, in one minute in Germany, can lenders become personally liable in the restructuring? That's a, that's a hard topic for one minute. but I know. Uh, we yeah. need to have another session. <laughs> answer the quick answer is um, yes there, there there is a liability risk for lenders in Germany and um, it really is triggered if a lender knows the debtor is in a financial distress situation and then does certain acts which come under the scrutiny of the court and one one of them would be taking excessive security for example so really taking the last assets of the the debtor company and then leaving the other creditors with zero or you continue funding, that's that's the most problematic part, continue funding, although you know the debtor is already insolvent, yeah, and um, if you do that with an intention to defraud the other creditors, then this can, can lead to a liability risk. So the market approach in Germany is only lend in a distress scenario against uh, what we call a restructuring opinion. So a viable restructuring concept certified by an auditor, a neutral person, if you have that, we call it an IDWS6 opinion, that's there you can lend against it then you're safe um, if it's not there then you yeah probably shouldn't do it or you should uh, at least ask uh, ask a, um, um, an advisor in order to, to really advise you on what to do can I ask a question Christopher sorry on that when when is this going to bite on a lender is it is it when any lender in any jurisdiction is lending to a German company or is it only a lender that's based in Germany just some people on the call might be a little worried by that <laughs> 
It is definitely lenders in Germany, so okay. there is um, there is supervisory law on that, um, which has to be followed by the lenders in banks in Germany, basically. But you can't rule out that there are there are any you know, conflict of laws issues that it might extend mm. in, um, in a situation where the the borrower is, for example, not German, but the lender is in is in is in Germany, or there are complicated issues there which which you need to take into consideration but i think the general rule is if your lender is in, is in germany then that lender should should definitely uh, raise the question for for an idw6 restructuring concept Thanks. liability of lenders uh, in france is not limited to french lender um, and so there are two main scenarios which is one very similar to germany where lenders would lend uh, knowingly to companies which are insolvent and you know increase the negative net worth to the detriment of the other creditors knowingly so there need to be an intent the negative intent very rare uh, the other scenario is where they withdraw uh, their loans uh, for pity reasons and cause the insolvency but I don't want to stall, and we need to hear about Spain. Uh, Santiago, did you have a case with lender having become liable? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sandra. Yes, yes. In Spain, lenders could become liable under narrow circumstances, as all you have said. But uh, um, we have never, that's important, we have never faced a judicial complaint against lender. Back. However, an increasing number of Spanish judges is, are in favor of finding banks liable. So now uh, we are starting to see, uh, we have uh, a large insolvent proceeding in Spain, in which the judge has submitted investigating the investment fund for precisely for alleged breach of financing contract. So that's the case, it's a debtor cutoff of financing and that is the reason of the insolvency in Spain could be could be a reason to find the fund liable. Um, we are waiting for the case where, because, as I said before, we have never faced a judicial condemn, but we are pretty, pretty interested in the, in, in the case. Okay, so looking forward to it. This is very short. Uh, we would have plenty to share again. Uh, thank you so much for joining this session. We hope you enjoyed it and uh, it gave you some valuable insights. We have set a matrix. We frequently ask questions on the topic of liabilities risk that distressed companies give uh, and emphasize exposure to. Feel free to reach out to us so we can share.